Well, we have been working our way through the book of 1 Timothy, as you know. And believe it or not, today is the final message. Today is number 17 in our series on 1 Timothy. And the final text will come from chapter 6, starting at verse 11. If you want to turn there or follow on the screen behind me, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glory and honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We all know people who do just the bare minimum. They just do enough to get by. If you ask a three-year-old to put his or her toys away because it's time to eat lunch, they will put maybe two toys away, leaving the other 2,937 toys on the floor, and they'll run to the lunch table like the job is done. We go to school with people, even in college, who do just enough to get by. Um, I think of one of my best friends in college. I won't mention my name today in case he listens to the, uh, the sermon online. But we had our own lab. There were like eight engineering majors the year that I w- was graduating, and they gave us our own lab. We had our own desk. We had keys to everything. And, and so we'd always meet there in the morning and, and have coffee and whatnot. And this friend of mine, his favorite posture first thing in the morning was to sit down with a cup of coffee in the sports section and begin reading the newspaper. Now, you know me. You know, I'm... High energy, we have, we have assignments to do, we have homework, we have tests. He was always my partner in things. We did things together. And I say, hey, we got to get working on it. we got to make progress. You know, it's due next week. He'd say, George, you worry too much. <laughs> we all know people who do just the bare minimum, just enough to get by. <clears throat> we work with people where we're always picking up the slack because they do just enough that they won't get fired, or just enough that HR just doesn't think they have grounds enough to let them go. And even in in church, there are those who wholeheartedly work and serve unto the Lord, and there are those who just kind of give some half-hearted help, and they count on always someone else, somebody else, to get the job done. In contrast to this, We have the text that is before us that we've just read that summons all of us to run to work as though we want the prize, to strain ahead, to have the mindset of a soldier following the example of Jesus Christ. Back in January, Bill Walters told me that he had 
heard from an old company commander from his army days who, after 20 years, suddenly got in touch with Bill. Bill said that man was the best leader he'd ever served with. Bill said, he was a leader I would have followed into battle without hesitation. He shared our hardships. That's the kind of allegiance that Jesus demands of any of us who will be his disciple, that we would follow Jesus into the battle without hesitation. And it's how Paul is asking Timothy to instruct the people that went to the church in Ephesus, to whom this letter is, is sent. He says, pursue the right things. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. Pursue love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And that word pursue in the Greek carries with it the connotation of to run after, to chase after with high energy, to pursue. There's nothing half-hearted in the word here at all. Pursue godly character like it's our primary calling because it is. Pursue godly character because we love and honor our commander even to the death. But Paul also juxtaposes the word pursue with the word flee. Flee means to move quickly from a point or area in order to avoid presumed danger or difficulty. Paul says we are to, are to flee worldliness and the things that this world offers. Flee the one and run to the other. Flee the worldliness and run towards godliness and righteousness and all those wonderful traits. That same idea is raised in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So Paul says there, 2 Timothy, flee youthful passions. And when we think of that term, youthful passions, we probably primarily think of lust and of sexual sins. But there is so much more. Sure, we must flee those things, to be sure. But we also must flee from being hot-headed, Paul will say. Being always divisive, always quarrelsome, always causing strife and problems. Flee from being argumentative. Some people are just argumentative. They just want to argue some point. I knew a woman once who, while I was, happened to be standing next to her, she had a bee fly under her shirt. And she started screaming, and she practically ripped her shirt off in front of me just to get the bee out. That's the kind of energy with which we should flee the sins of youth. That same kind of screaming, I don't want this, I want to run from it, I don't want it near me. There's an old saying it goes like this, that you can't prevent the birds from flying over, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. Anybody have any idea who said that? I was flabbergasted this week to learn who said that. Anybody know? 
I didn't hear that. No, no. That would be a great, great guess, guess though. Uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther reformer. Not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther said that. You can't stop the birds from flying over, but you can prevent them from making nests in your hair. Along the way, Satan lays traps for us. Some are brazen, some are subtle and smooth and clever. Some are like the viciousness of a pit bull running down the street towards you with fangs bare. I don't know if you've ever had a pit bull chasing down the street. Anybody here had? I see. You have? Okay, okay. And what'd you do, Mark? I rode my bike as fast as I could. <laughs> That's right. And you outran him, as I recall. Um, I don't know if Mark can still ride a bike fast, but when, I know when he was a young teenager, nobody's legs would move faster on a bicycle than, than his. Some of those uh, temptations of Satan, they're like the, the snares, like, the, um, like the, the bite of a pit bull, which just kind of you know, locks its jaw and won't let go. But other attacks of the enemy, other temptations of Satan are very quiet and very still. And they're very stealth. And they're more like a slithering, venomous serpent. And you don't even know it's there. It lies in wait, quietly, just waiting for the right moment to strike. That would be like the temptation in the Garden of Eden. I saw a picture on the internet a few weeks ago. I don't think it was a new picture. I think I saw it a couple years ago, too. But it showed this outside sunroom, kind of like a Four Seasons room. It was very nicely appointed with... Outside furniture and all, like, you know, love seat and chairs and table and all this kind of stuff. And the caption said, there is a serpent hiding in this picture. For real. Can you spot it? And I couldn't spot it. I think it was actually across the top of the couch. But it just blended in perfectly. And that's how Satan is sometimes. Sometimes he is the vicious put bull. Other times, he's just lying in stealth, lying quietly, waiting for that right moment to, to strike. Paul will tell us to flee those things, run from them, and run to the righteousness of God. However harmless or however vile the temptations appear, if you turn over any of his temptations, they all say the same thing. They all say made in hell. They all say made in hell. Satan doesn't know the future, but he does know the past. And he knows our weaknesses. Um, you know, remember, Satan is just a fallen angel. Don't ever put him on the, on the uh, level of God. And it's not a great cosmic battle between equal and opposite forces, God and Satan. No. God is on the throne, period, above all. Satan is a fallen angel. Now, he's a big mouth and he's a liar. He's the father of all lies, but he's not on the same level. Uh, He doesn't know all things. God knows the end from the beginning. Satan does not know the end from the beginning. He doesn't know what will happen tomorrow. He's just a fallen angel. But he does know the past. He knows what's tripped you up in the past. He knows what kinds of temptations work with you. He knows just how to fashion that temptation that has a pretty good chance of, of finding some traction with you. 
And all the traps that he sets all have the same purpose, to shipwreck our faith. And he loves especially to shipwreck the faith of the children of the godly and of the grandchildren of the godly. He delights with glee at shipwrecking the faith of our offspring. His temptations may render us impotent. They may squeeze the very spiritual life out of us in the same way an anaconda will wrap itself around its prey. And you know what they do is, is when it wraps around a, even a person, say, every time you breathe out, it wraps tighter. So then you can't get any more oxygen. If you get a little bit of oxygen, when you breathe that out, it wraps tighter until you're finally dead. And that's what Satan does with his temptations if we allow him to. He'll suck the very spiritual life out of us. You wouldn't want one little bee under your shirt. You wouldn't want one little roach in your kitchen. And so do not entertain those things which war against your spiritual life. About two weeks ago, my lovely wife over there said, I found this bug in the dining room. And she showed it to me. I said, I think that's a roach. And she had been grocery shopping the day before. You know, sometimes they, they come in the, in the grocery sacks. And they come from the grocery store into your house. And when I, just one is all it takes for me to get pretty upset. I don't want one. Because one will always mean two, two will mean 2,000, 2,000 will mean 4,000. And we had our apartment in, in Pasadena for eight, eight months, the eight very difficult months of our lives that we were there. It was the only apartment we ever lived in that had roaches and lots of them because it was connected to other apartments. And I set out these traps and we found not one variety, not two varieties, five different varieties including Oksana, the well-known German roach, all in our apartment. We were so glad to move out of that place. But in the same way that none of us here wants to have any of that. You don't want to have a bee under your shirt. You don't want to have a roach in your house. Don't allow even little bits of worldliness. Flee it. Run from it. Don't let it have place in your life. Don't have a little secret room where you allow it to run and roam free. Be, be stern. Be relentless in keeping a clean house of your heart. Can I hear an amen, amen. to that? There's nothing here, nothing in the Scripture, nothing, hear those people, that says we should see how close we can get to actual sin without sinning. Will you find that principle in the scripture? And yet people all the time want to see how close they can get. You say, well, I think it's okay what I did with my girlfriend. As though, well, I'll just see how close I can get without sinning. Does the Bible anywhere teach, well, see how close you can get, but make sure you don't go too far? No. The teaching of the scripture from cover to cover is see how close you can get to the Lord Jesus Christ. Run from the old things, run to him. Not, well, I think it's okay if I have some of this and some of that and go this far and not that far. That is not what the Bible calls you and me to. How close can you get to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what Paul is telling Timothy here. 
And he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. I heard a college co-ed recently say, this is her quote, I am a pacifist. I think all conflicts should be solved peaceably. Now, I happen to think that's a very naive position, but I'm not here this morning to debate that. I do know that the Bible describes a very real spiritual conflict that we are in. And it's a battle between good and evil. It's a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It's a battle for our souls and the souls of our children and our grandchildren. And it's a battle to the death. And there's a whole lot of battle language in the New Testament, is there not? Jesus never calls anybody to pacifism when it comes to dealing with the sins of the flesh, when it comes to dealing with the temptations of Satan. Rather, it's fight the good fight of faith. Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, how are we going to survive such a battle? How can we hope to be victorious in that kind of a battle where it's not just against a a little demon, as bad as that might be, but against authorities, demonic authorities, demonic powers, demonic strongholds? Well, we're going to do what the Scripture tells us to do. We're going to be watchful. We're going to be vigilant. We're going to be prepared. We're going to not let our guard down, not take a little vacation. I think for a season, you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of tired of working at it. I think I just, need, I just need a break. Well, you just take a break, you might end up shipwrecked, okay? You can't take a break. Satan doesn't take a break, Fred. He doesn't take a break from attacking you. Michael, he doesn't take a break from attacking you. He didn't say, well, Michael, next two weeks, go on vacation to your family, and I'll leave you alone. So we have to not let our guard down. We have to use the weapons that God has given us. Scripture says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If you want to have a good scripture to preach on, that's a good scripture you can really preach on. We use spiritual weapons. We use the, the, the weapons that are not carnal. And the best weapon to use, the overall weapon to use, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, when he wrote the great hymn, Mighty Fortress Our God, said, One little word will fail him. That one little word is the name Jesus Christ. And so we use not the weapons of the world, we use the weapons that God has given us. We destroy strongholds, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Every temptation that you and I get, you know, the kind that, that just threaten to kind of um, you know, get into our soul, get into our spirit, it really is a lofty opinion against the knowledge of God. It is. Call it what it is. It's not just a temptation. It's something that's being raised against the very knowledge of God. 
And the Lord tells us to take captive every thought. Put on the whole armor of God. You all know that passage from Ephesians 6, but I'll read it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, let me pause right there. Isn't this a place to talk about the coronavirus? The way, you know, people, some people are so scared, right? And... You know, they, they protect themselves, they wear suits, they wear masks, they take all kinds of extreme measures because they're so afraid of the coronavirus. So if you knew that right here in this room this morning that somebody was here with the coronavirus, you might leave. I bet, I bet a lot of you would leave. I bet you would. So Paul's saying, put on the full armor, put on the whole hazmat suit to, against the enemy. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up Thank you, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. My friends, don't go AWOL. Don't disappear from the battle. Don't take a break. Don't take a vacation. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's the mindset of a disciple of Jesus. Our problem so often, especially in the rich culture we live in, is we get entangled in civilian pursuits. We get all caught up with all kinds of stuff that really don't, doesn't matter that much. And we forget about the high calling and the battle that we've been called to and that we are, on a, we are active duty. We're not waiting to be called up. We're not on reserve. We are active duty. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, Jesus took frequent rests. You know that. I know that. And that was that. That's our human side we talked about last week. Jesus was fully God and fully man. In the man part, he got tired. And he would take rest, but he always got right back in the saddle. So I'm not saying to you this morning that we never take a rest or never go away for a week. No. But maybe you take a rest, but they say, okay, now it's time to get back in the saddle. I can't relax. I am called. I want active duty. And so I can't just say, well, you know, for the next six months or so, or, you know, well, I'm just kind of, I time to let somebody else carry the heavy load for a while. You won't find a scripture for that, Dane and Devin. You won't find any scripture that says, just let somebody else do it for a while. You can pick it up when you're ready. No, it's your active duty. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight of, of faith. Maybe you'd, you take a rest. You take a vacation. Maybe some nights you just have to stay at home and take a deep. But the next morning, 
Get back up and fight the good fight of faith. Don't get spoiled by rest. Don't like it too much. Don't fall in love with vacations too much. Our text says we should make the same confession of Christ. Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase. Make the same confession as Christ. I think that's a fancy way of saying, follow his example. Look at what Jesus did and do the same thing. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he didn't take the easy way out. He could have. He could have avoided it, but he didn't. He stood on what the word of God said. The trial before Pilate was a pivotal moment in Jesus' suffering. And again, don't miss this, he could have taken the easy road. He could have told a half-truth and saved his neck. When push came to shove, Jesus made a good confession. He stood on the truth. That was Jesus' way. It led him to the cross, and it led to our salvation. And I think you and I get tempted a lot to to not quite be black and white. Kind of push the truth a little bit. Use a little half-truth. Be clever. I mean, we all have the ability to be clever in order to squirm out of the pressure that will come if we just stand on the truth. When Paul says, make the good confession, same confession of Christ, I think he's telling us, be just like Jesus. Stick with the truth. Stay on the truth. Don't try to squirm your way out by giving some pleasant answer that will calm someone, but stick with the truth. And that's you know, colored by the scripture that says, always speak the truth with love. I'm not saying be unloving, but do both. But don't, don't squirm away from the truth. When you're put on the spot at work, stick with the truth. Um, right now, I don't know if you know, a whole lot of healthcare workers in the country are having problems because they're being forced into participating in abortions, even if their conscience is against it. It's a problem. If you don't know it's a problem, look it up today. It's, 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 it's coming to a place near you. Um, you know, it's not good enough anymore to say, well, just let those that want to participate do it. It's going to be, no, we want everyone to be required to, or else there will be fines and, and penalties. And when these things come home to roost, we all can come up with clever ways to avoid the pressure. But make the same confession of Christ. Stand on the truth. Stick with the truth. Stand firm. If it costs you dearly, you're doing it for Jesus. You're doing it for Jesus, and that's all the reason you need. Doing the right thing and standing on truth is more important than life itself. One of the great, great people in the Bible is Queen Esther, a great woman of God. And do you remember when her neck was on the chopping block, when she was about to go into the the king, and she didn't know how it would go for her. Um, This is what she says. She said, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Follow the confession of Queen Esther. She was following the confession of Jesus Christ. Uh, 
standing on truth, doing the right thing, and if I perish, I perish. Doing the right thing, standing on the truth, is more important than life itself. I was hoping to hear a few amens. Amen. Kind of half-hearted amens. I'll say it again. Doing the right thing and staying on truth is more important than life itself. Amen. Amen. That's better. This is the way of a disciple of Jesus. Where standing with him means more than all of the riches of the world. You know, that was offered to Jesus in one of the temptations in the wilderness. Standing with him means more than any relationship as much as we all love and think we need relationships. This is how we make a good confession. Then Paul says, take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. This is an interesting little phrase. Some of us think we did that when we said the sinner's prayer. Well, I prayed a prayer once. I took hold of eternal life. Been there, done that. My friend, salvation is way more than saying a prayer. It's even more than repenting of our sins and saying that we're transferring our trust to Christ. It's more than that. Salvation, as I like to say, is completely free, but it will cost you everything. It's completely free. You don't, it's not earned by works at all. But a true salvation will cost you everything. It will be proven by your works. You don't earn it by works. You'll never hear me say it as you, you earn salvation or earn God's grace or earn God's favor by works. But if you are truly saved, if you have truly turned from your sins and come to Christ, put your faith in him as your Savior, it will be manifested by your works. That's why James says faith without works is death. There's got to be proof. There's got to be evidence. People have to be able to see something. Or you've got to really wonder if I'm deceived and only think that I'm in the right relationship with God. And again, works is not the essence. It's not the, what gives us a relationship with God. But when we come to him by faith, repenting of our sins, that should be evidence manifested by many good works that people see and realize that Jesus is Lord of our lives. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both the will and the work for his good pleasure. Does Paul ever say, just say a little prayer and don't worry about a thing? Does he ever say that? No. Did he ever um, minister the gospel to group of people and then just lead them in a prayer and say, okay, we're good to go now? No. The same Paul that preached the gospel said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means that's a, it's an active process. It's a daily effort. It's daily turning from the things that defile our souls, that corrupt our souls. It's actively turning to, taking hold of, appropriating godliness. 
It's daily making that good confession of Jesus Christ. Working it out with fear and trembling means we give it our strong attention, that we give extreme care to it. There's people that give more care to their cars or to their cell phones than they do to working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Did Jesus ever say, just pray a little prayer? No. He said, take up your cross daily and follow me. I think that's what's meant here in 1 Timothy, this final chapter, when Paul says, take hold of eternal life. I don't read passive there. I read extraordinarily active. Take hold of eternal life. It's being tenacious. It's keeping our focus. Like Christian in the book Pilgrim's Progress, it's ignoring all those tempting, delicious, inviting delights along the way and choosing the path to the celestial city, whether you're walking it alone at points or whether you have company, whether your emotions are up here or down here, it's walking the path to the celestial city, having your eyes on the prize, and the prize is, the prize is not heaven, the prize is Jesus Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, it's not pearly gates and streets of gold and a mansion with Michael's name on it. The prize is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which I think is hard for us to grasp what that means. I don't think we will grasp it till one day we experience it. What that is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is it worth it? Is it worth the fight? Is it worth the self-denial? Look at what Paul says, to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's all part of these six verses or so in our text today. I mean, Paul put all that in there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's a lot packed in there. Jesus will appear. The day that Jesus appears will be the most horrible day ever for the ones, and they are the majority, who have loved this present world. It'll be the most horrible, awful, terrible day ever, the day when Jesus appears for those who have loved this present world and what it can give. But it will be the most wonderful day ever, the most wonderful day since the creation of the world for those who have loved him, for those who have denied themselves for his sake. This leads me to think about where we will be in 10 years. You can take that as a personal question. Where will you be spiritually 10 years from today? What will your relationship with Jesus be 10 years from today? Will it be non-existent? Will it be stone cold, frozen out by the cares of the world? 
Or will it be full of passion for him, full of fervor for him, full of the joy of the Lord? Which I happen to think should accompany the walk of the believer every day, which is probably why I tell a lot of jokes and say the things that I do. Where will our family be? Will your marriage be intact 10 years from now? Will your children be walking with the Lord? Or will they be breaking our hearts? Will we wonder 10 years from now, where did we ever go wrong? And be filled with regret and sorrow for not getting serious earlier and making hard choices. Ten years from now, how focused on serving will we be? Will we be sacrificing and serving or living a very comfortable, self-centered life? So where are we going to be in ten years? White hot for Jesus, more in love with him than we are today where he's more central to our lives than he is today, it really will depend upon whether we are fighting the good fight of faith today, whether we are pursuing Christ with all our energy and working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, fleeing the traps, subtle and not so subtle, that Satan lays for us every day that we get up. Well, that's the word of the Lord this morning, all from a few verses at the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you once again for your powerful word. Your word is so amazing. And I just, I don't know, I've been walking with you for a long time, Lord. I've been preaching for a long time, and you know, I just feel like every week, every month, your word is, is, seems to me like more strong, more powerful, more wonderful, more awesome. I know it hasn't changed. Maybe my eyes are just open to it more. All I know is that your word is what we need. We live in a, a tough world where every one of us has the, the pull of the flesh tearing at us from our own internal struggles and sins and temptations to outward things to societal pressures to our cultural pressures, um, every, every, every place we look, in, within and without, there are these pulls at our flesh and the temptation to, to turn away from you and to turn to a less difficult path, a more flesh-pleasing path, but one that is wrong, one that will lead us from where we really want to be with you. Lord, I ask that you would let these words that we've shared today with all their power um, go deep into our psyches and our souls and bring conviction and bear fruit. Lord, if any of us are feeling like we're on the fence today and we're not sure what direction we want to go, we're not sure we want to choose white hot for Jesus, may you give us that extra nudge and that extra awareness that, that the other way really is a dead end. The other way really is a lie. It really is a lie. Lord, encourage anybody here today that's just struggling with the faith and isn't sure if, if they can really trust you, if life in Christ is really worth it, would you encourage them today? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Um, I wish I had thought about this earlier, but in my Sunday school grow group this morning, I showed the people there a picture. It was a picture of a car 
that is actually for sale in Waukegan. And if you saw the picture, and I really regret that I didn't think about it to, to show you, this just popped in my head to share with you. If you saw the car, you would know that it's good for one thing, and that's one of those compactors. But it's for sale today in the city of Waukegan. And I asked ZJ, who was in my class, who understands sales, he understands people. I said, ZJ, I want you to sell this car to us. Start, pretend you're a salesman, and tell us how great this car is. And he did, Saldi and Vilma, a really good job. He started talking about, well, it's made in Japan, so the parts are easy to get, and it's easy to fix, and it has a bulge in the hood, meaning it's got a big engine underneath, and it's uh, um, got a lot of power. And about that little dent on the side, the entire driver's side was totally smashed in. He said, you don't need to use that door. It's a rag top. You can just leap, jump in the driver's seat. And by the time he was done, I was ready to buy that car. The point is, that's what Satan does with us. He puts these temptations in front of us. They're absolutely devastating, destructive, have no usefulness, no goodness, no perfect, nothing to offer. But he paints them and portrays them as something we can't live without when it's an absolute lie. God's way is pure, it's holy, it's lovely, it's excellent, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's beyond having the human words to express. It's like trying to explain the word glory. You, can't, you cannot explain the glory of God. I have tried. I've wanted to explain to the church, what is the glory of God? You can't explain the glory of God. Even if you're a wordsmith, you cannot put into words the magnificence of the glory of the everlasting God that we know through his son, Jesus Christ. 